Hello, everybody, and welcome back to PLC Podcast. Um, this is episode three, and I'm recording this on Saturday, April 4th. So uh, I wanted to record another podcast, and sorry, I, <laughs> the days of um, making amazing theme music like in episode one and two uh, are, are probably done because it's going to be too busy. But anyway, I wanted to um, record another episode here to talk about the next step we're going to take in um, using Agda, and that is doing inductive proofs. Okay, so that's what I want to talk about a little bit here um, is about doing induction in Agda and how induction works with the Curry-Howard isomorphism. And you know, there's only so far we'll be able to take this just talking about it. We'll have to do screencasts of this too, but there's some general things we can just say. And again, I hope that the mix of media. Um, I, I suppose somebody might be annoyed that's kind of like, couldn't you just give it to us one way? Because now I have to figure out how to listen to two of your things instead of just one of your thing. Um, but hopefully listening to podcasts is easy if you have a podcast app on your phone. And the screencast some people have had some trouble with on Windows, it seems. So maybe you need to use VLC player or something like that instead of just Windows Media Player to play MP4s, even though that seems to be by far the common video format these days. So... Um, so anyway, use Piazza if you're having some troubles with any of that technology stuff. Um, and I guess while we're just talking about course roundup stuff, so the um, you're working on workout five. It's due on Wednesday, April eighth, and on then the next workout, workout six, will be due a week after that. And it's a week long. You know, it's it's, it's intended to take a week to do, so it's not intended to be super long. But I have announced I've posted it early. Um, I'm just trying to get ahead of things a little bit for releasing course content. So I've, I've posted that early, so you could start working on it if you finish workout five. Um, but you don't have to. It's not like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have to do two workouts at the same time. No, no, just do workout five from April 1st to April 8th, and then do workout six from April 8th to April 15th. Okay. So um, anyway, so uh, and we're having our Zoom office hours, the office hour, the Zoom meeting information and times are available uh, through Piazza, there's some pinned uh, Piazza posts. I think one of them refers you just directly to the course calendar for some of that information. But um, you can, you should be able to find our office hour times pretty well from that. So you know, if, if you have any trouble, you know, you, you can ask questions on Piazza or just hit me up directly by email if you need to. Um, so my bandwidth is going to be a little limited, but um, definitely if you're having trouble accessing anything, um, let me know and I'll try to help. Okay, so what I want to talk about now is uh, induction. And, you know, induction is this absolutely basic reasoning tool in mathematics and in computer science. And as we'll see, when we're going to try to reason about interesting functional programs, pretty much all the proofs you're going to do are inductive. Okay, so what is induction again? Are you rusty on it? <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I know I was rusty on it at some point, too, when I was kind of getting into this sort of thing a while ago. Um, you know, so you learn in discrete math about the principle of induction. And it says, usually it's they just talk about natural number induction. So we have the natural number 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, so the non-negative integers. And um, to prove, suppose you want to prove that something's true for all natural numbers, Okay. This is where, you know, I talked about this in one of the earlier podcast episodes, the sort of amazing power of computer check proofs, or just of proofs, not computer check, just any old proofs, is that we can, you know, when you say, I've got a piece of software, I'd like to 
make sure it works, you can write a finite number of tests, right? You can test it on a bunch of stuff. You can write it many, many tests. You can set up parallel clusters that will, you know, or you run, set up clusters that will run your tests in parallel and, and do lots and lots of testing for you. And you'll still only be checking a finite number of tests. Um, but with a proof, you can, you can, in effect, check an infinite number of tests. Wow, doesn't that sound amazing? Yeah, it is pretty amazing. And we're going to do that. <laughs> we'll do it with a computer check proof. So it's not just a proof on paper where you could kind of, you know, if you're not careful, you skip too many steps. You know, mathematicians, you know, when they write out proofs, they do not write out all the details of every last little step that they're taking, right? They take big steps just invoking this or that theorem, this or that lemma, leaving it, you know, I, I understand that part of the, you know, elegance of mathematical writing and part of what, you know, makes for really good mathematical writing is just the right judgment about what to, to put in there and what not to put in there. You know, what, what do I, what do I have to, what does this information have to give a mathematically educated reader that they would be able to follow the proof? Okay. Cause if I just give them every last thing, it's just going to overwhelm them with information. And if I give them too little, then they won't understand why the theorem is true. So, um, with computer check proofs, we have to give a lot of details, <laughs> unfortunately, but as you'll find for reasoning about functional programs, pure functional programs, it's actually really not that bad. It's actually totally manageable. There's, you know, some sort of, you know, in some from some ancient history of this kind of um, approach where you prove things about your code, people have, you know, especially older computer scientists have a bad taste in their mouth. They're like, this is just like in ridiculously hard, and there's no way you could do this for reasonable size pieces of code. And that that may have been true of methods, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s or something, but it's not true today. Like now, you can prove. Um, deep properties of big pieces of code you know, com with computer check proofs. Um, it's it's a lot of work. The more proof, you know, the the more the deeper your properties, the more significant your result. The more effort it's going to take to get it proved. Um, but we'll see. For you know, if you've got like little two-line pure functional programs, doing this or that operation on lists or trees or something, generally it's not that hard to. It doesn't take a Herculean effort to prove some properties about them. Okay, and the, the key tool we're going to use for this is induction. So anyway, back to induction. So what is induction again? Mathematical induction? Well, mathematical induction, we're trying to prove some property is true for all natural numbers. And what you're supposed to do, if you remember, you're supposed to prove, you've got this property you're trying to prove. You need to prove it's true for zero. That's your so-called base case. And then you need to prove that if, assuming it's true for x, it's true for x plus 1. Okay, so it's assuming it's true for x, it's true for the next number after x. And you're supposed to prove that for just an arbitrary x, some unknown x. You're doing this in general. It's not for some particular x you prove it, you assume for x and prove for x plus 1. You just say, I've got some x, I don't know what it is. Assume my property is true for x and prove for x plus 1. And then, you know, why does this cover all the cases? Well... So that that if you do this, if you prove your base case, and this uh, this case is this other kind, this other case is called the step case or the inductive case. If you prove these two cases, um, you've that's enough to to establish the property for any natural number. And the usual argument, I still remember seeing in some discrete math book a picture of dominoes. It's like that that when you push, <laughs> you've got this big long chain of dominoes. And if I'm on, so say I'm trying to prove, I've got my inductive argument. I want to know, is it really true for 105? 
Okay, so the, the, the little pictorial explanation is that, well, imagine you've got this chain of dominoes, there's some starting domino, and then it goes and goes and goes and goes and goes to, to domino 105. And when you push domino 105, then it goes click, 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 all the way back to the very first one, and then it just, that falls over, and then that's the end. Um, I mean, that's some sort of visual metaphor for why this, and you know, so the idea is supposed to be, since you proved the step case, you kind of proved that sort of takes care of knocking over one domino based on knocking over the ones before it. And then in the very base case, there's, there's nothing before it. I, I actually think this is a, like a pretty, <laughs> this is sort of a crappy metaphor. I mean, I guess it kind of works. It does work. It makes some sense, but for programming, it's really, it's, it's lousy. It's not a good metaphor for programmers, I think, because for programmers, you just say, Oh, it's, you were going to say, it's kind of like writing a function. You know, you got to, you got a base case for your function. You sort of bottom out at some point, and you've got a step case. Like, like from a Haskell perspective, you know, say you're writing any old function on lists. Like, say you're writing map on lists, right? So you have to say, well, how do I map a function on the empty list? And you say, yeah, that's the base case, or I turn the empty list. And how do I map the function on a cons? And you say, oh, okay. So if I'm trying to map a function f over some list then I'm supposed to apply F to the head and I, of the list, and then I recurse on the tail. Okay, so I just make a recursive call, and there's like no deep mystery to that, although beginning computer scientists, I, I, <laughs> I've heard from colleagues, um, I haven't really seen this myself, but when people are first learning recursion, they're just kind of like, what the heck? I mean, what is it? How do I know that this function, yeah, why, why do I get to call the function again or something? You know, it's like, but we, we understand recursion, right? You're, we definitely understand it after programming in Haskell for six weeks or whatever. So you write some function, you're allowed to make uh, recursive calls. And if you make recursive calls just on smaller pieces of your input data, then if your input data is finite, you're eventually going to hit your base case. You know, Haskell is a little bit of a weird one. We didn't really see this terribly much, but Haskell lists aren't guaranteed to be finite. You can have lazy infinite lists, which we did see. And so there, induction doesn't really it's not really making sense because you're not going to hit a base case necessarily. But let's just assume that your lists are finite, right? Then when you recurse deeper and deeper into the list, eventually you're going to kind of eat through the whole list. You'll hit the empty list and you stop. Okay. So we sort of say, so I think for programmers, it's much better to say, well, look, mathematical induction, this kind of weird thing where I get to assume what I'm trying to prove and all this, like, how does that work? It's just like recursion. Okay. When you write a recursive function, you you get to call the function as if it works. You know, like I'm saying, I've got map, and I get to make a call to map on the tail. And you say, wait, wait, you're, you're in the middle of defining map. How's that legal? You kind of, it's recursion, dude. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to make calls on smaller stuff because eventually it's going to bottom out and you'll be done. And induction is, is totally the same kind of thing. It's like, okay, um, I'm trying to prove this property is true for all numbers, and I just have to handle the case. I, I have to do pattern matching and say like, okay, well, if the number is zero, ret you know, return your proof of the base case. If your number is uh, X plus one, so in other words, it's not zero, it's a non-zero number, then you're going to have to give the proof for that case, but you are allowed to make a recursive call if you want. You can use your induction hypothesis. So you use, you, you use this assumption that the thing you're trying to prove is true for the smaller number or the, the tail of the list or whatever. Uh, and that gives you this important information, which you can then use to finish off the case for X plus one or cons, you know, the bigger, one bigger piece of data. 
Okay. So in other words, for mathematical induction, you know, it's really, I mean, definitely for programmers, like a much better analogy is that it's just like terminating recursion. And now guess what? Under the Curry-Howard isomorphism, it is terminating recursion. It's not just similar. It's not just kind of, you know, a good way to kind of understand it, even though it's really different. It's the same thing. The Curry-Howard isomorphism tells you that induction and terminating recursion are one and the same. It is more exciting than Peter Parker and Superman. Spider-Man, whatever. Induction and recursion, terminating recursion, are the same. This is amazingly great news. So under the Curry-Howard isomorphism, and we'll see this in Agda, if you want to write an inductive proof, you just write a recursive function. It needs to terminate because remember, we talked about this in Agda. You need all your functions to terminate. Or in similar tools. It's not, Agda's not the only one. In similar tools, you need your functions to terminate. Because if they could run forever, you could write infinite loops that would prove any formula. Right? Because an infinite loop, if you write an infinite loop, you can return any type you want. You're like, oh, yeah. Well, the boss wants, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a, an MP4 decoder because there's doesn't work on their Windows Media Player. Don't worry, I can give them one. You want something of type MP4 decoder? No problem. I just write this infinite loop. There you go. Now you got an MP4 decoder. No, of course you don't. You just have a loop and because uh, a loop can be at any type, right? And so for logic, that's like that's totally no good. You can't have loops at all your different types because then your your logic is saying everything's provable and that's that's a bad logic. Your logics need to say certain things are provable and certain things are not provable. Certain things are valid certain things are not valid. Okay, so when we're um, when we're proving when writing inductive proofs, it means we have to write terminating functions because the termination part corresponds to the, the sort of soundness of the induction principle. Like when you do um, of the induction proof. So when you're trying to do an induction and mathematical inductive proof, you ha you can only use your induction hypothesis for the smaller number or the smaller list or the smaller whatever kind of finite data you have. Right, you can't say, "Oh, I'm going to prove this amazing property of numbers by induction." I prove my base case. Now I'm, I prove it's true for zero. That was easy. Now I'm supposed to true, prove it's true for x plus one, and I can prove it's true for x plus one by using my induction hypothesis at value x plus one. Ooh, that'd be an infinite loop. You see that? You say, "Like, oh, I'm going to prove for x plus one, assuming it's true for x plus one." That sounds circular, and that. And that's that kind of circularity, but you say, oh, but how is that any less circular than just saying, I'm going to prove it for x plus 1, assuming it's true for x? Well, that's the amazing power of recursion. Recursion is a is a, a form of circularity, but it's, it's a safe one because it's one that's going to bottom out. So it's not so much circular, it's like a spiral or something. It's going down, 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 and eventually it hits the, hits the floor and it stops. You know, whereas if you say, I'm going to prove it for x plus 1, assuming it's true for x plus 1, that's really like a circle. You're just going around and around and around. That, doesn't, that will never stop, right? So that will, that's an infinite loop. Um, that's an unsound induction, and under the Curry-Howard isomorphism, that would just turn into a looping program. So that's no good. Or you could say, oh, I'm going to prove it's true for x plus 1, assuming it's true for 3. You say, that's not, that's not an obvious circle. Well, eh, what if x plus 1 is 3? then you got a circle. Or what if you start at a bigger number, like 35, and you spiral down? Imagine this sort of spiral metaphor going round and round, down and down and down. And you finally hit the case where it's 3. And in that case, you make a little circle because your proof said, I'm going to prove it's true for x plus 1, assuming it's true for 3. So you can't, you don't get to use your induction hypothesis for anything other than the immediately smaller data. And that's the same thing for your terminating recursion. 
You don't get to, you can't make recursive calls on anything else besides just sub data of your starting data. Um, now there's actually, uh, you know, so the mo that's the most basic form of terminating recursion is to make a recursive call on the immediate sub data of your data. Now there's actually like a lot more fancy versions of this um, that actually go beyond what's implemented in, in something like Agda. And actually in our Sedil tool that we're developing here at Iowa, you can do fancier terminating recursions than just this simple one. And in fact, in my uh, other podcast, I, if you go to my webpage, I have this podcast called the Iowa Type Theory Commute. And right now I'm slowly releasing episodes in chapter eight of the commute about terminating recursion and talking about some sort of these sort of things. So you're, you're certainly not required to listen to that for this class. But if you're curious about this kind of thing, I'm talking about it over in that other forum right now. So uh, anyway, so induction and terminating recursion are the same under the Curry-Howard isomorphism. And it's great news for us programmers because it means this stuff, which, I mean, for me, my discrete math class was, admittedly, it was decades ago. Okay, but I still remember it kind of like, uh, sort of puzzling, kind of <laughs> kind of annoying. How do I do these proofs? It's like, uh, it doesn't really come naturally to me. I just want to create some code. Now, you do get to write code to do your proofs. It's pretty great. Under the Cray-Howard isomorphism, writing proofs is just more coding. Haha, <laughs> we should be good at that, right? <laughs> you know, hopefully. Um, and I, actually, in my experience, people usually do fine figuring out how to write these kind of proofs. Um, you know, we're not writing proofs in, you know, algebraic topology. We're writing proofs about functional programs. So the, the, the sort of thing we're reasoning about is right up our alley as computer scientists. So, um, so yeah. So anyway, so that's what you do. In Agda, you simply write... Um, you're going to write a recursive, terminating recursive function. Agda is going to termination check your code for you. If, it's, if it sees that you're doing something funny, like what I was saying, where, oh, I make recursive calls where, that are not legal, that are on bigger data or unrelated data or the same data as I started with, it's going to give you an error message at compile time, which is pretty cool. So it's going to termination check all your code. So in fact, just by the fact that you're implementing your functions in Agda, even just your regular functions, not functions you're thinking of as proofs. I mean, Agda doesn't distinguish between functions you think of as proofs and functions you just think of as regular functions um, in your program. But uh, it's going to termination check everything. So when you write list map in, um, in Agda, it's going to termination check that for you. And so in fact, the IAL is full of terminating functions. Um, actually, it was funny. There was just an issue filed just this morning uh, against the IAL uh, saying that under Agda 2.6.1, the termination checker is failing on some um, piece of code, which is pretty interesting. That's I didn't know about that, so I have to investigate. Um, but anyway, Agda is termination checking all these functions, and it says, "Yep, yep, they all terminate." And so you know, but when you write your proofs, um, it's just it's just the same thing. You're writing another terminating function, and you're using the fancier typing of Agda. We talked about this using the dependent types. Dependent means that um, uh, we need dependent types to have like quantified formulas. So you want to say for every, uh, you know, for every list L, if you append L with the empty list, you get L. That'd be a good one to write on a screen. I'll write that for next screencast. But anyway, just think of any old theorem you're trying to prove that's true for all X or for all natural numbers N or whatever. Um, you know, as a formula, we say for all N, that's a natural number, blah, blah, blah. You know, n is greater than or equal to zero. Okay, that's a boring theorem. 
uh, but but one you have to prove. And uh, so, um, and so as a type, though, that's that's the formula. It's a universal quantification. As a type, it becomes the so-called dependent type. It's a type for a function that takes in an input n and then returns a proof, you know, of n greater than or equal to zero. So in other words, it's the, the type of the return value mentions the input value. So there's a dependency between the actual input value that's coming into the function and the return type of the function. There's always, you know, generally going to be a dependency between the input value and the output value, right? If I call map on the empty list that, and I return the empty list, well, I'm computing the output value from the input value. So there's always sort of a dependency there. But with dependent typing, you're talking about there's a dependency between the input value and the type of the output value. That's dependent typing, which we talked about. And I can remind us again when I have a screen in front of you instead of just hearing me talk. Um, so, uh, so using, and we have equality types. We talked about those. So using these ingredients, you know, dependent types and equality types, uh, we can express um, properties of functions that we define over natural numbers or lists or whatever. And then we can prove those properties by writing terminating recursive functions that have those types. So to prove a, th formula, a theorem like for all n that's a natural number, n greater than or equal to zero, to prove that, we're going to write a function that recurses on n. It's going to have a base case, what if n is zero, and it's going to have a step case. What if, what if n is actually some, you know, x plus one? Um, as we'll see, we're, we'll do this in the next screencast. The, the way we do natural numbers as a data type, we have constructors, zero, and successor. Okay, so you don't really, you don't say in your induction note, prove it's true for zero, prove it's true for x plus one. You say, assume, prove it's true for zero, and then prove it's true for successor of x, where you're allowed to make recursive calls on x. Okay, so we, 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 to view natural numbers as a data type, we, you know, any data type has constructors, and so here the constructors are zero and successor. Okay, so we'll see all this in action um, in our next screencast, uh, which I'll post pretty soon here. Um, it's, you know, I partly I wanted to give some sort of preamble to this, uh, because induction is a pretty deep topic, and so there's interesting, you know, things one can just say about it without having to pour over code. Um, but also, it is, you know, it, it's much more challenging to prove things by induction, right? There's like, <laughs> you know, now we enter the realm of real math. When we were just, the, the, the basic proofs we did so far in our screencast and that you have to do on your workout six, these are just reasoning about finite things or just doing kind of um, simple non-inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is where um, things become more challenging in math. And, and and one of the reasons for that, I guess this is the last good point to, to emphasize, um, one of the reasons that induction is challenging and is more mathematically interesting is that a lot of times, you might remember this from your discrete math class, remember how they talk about, oh, we might need to strengthen the induction hypothesis? Yeah, so it might be that the thing you're trying to prove doesn't really go through by induction just directly. You have to prove something a little stronger that actually implies what you want. Okay, because the, the induction is this tricky thing. Like, I have to prove my property for X for successor of X, assuming it's true for X. So, you know, how strong should that property P be? Um, if it's too weak, then I might not have that much work to do to prove the property for successor of X, but being weak means my induction hypothesis or getting to make a recursive call 
to get a proof of the property for just X, that might, you know, that when I get, you know, making that recursive call, I get some sort of power, you know, I get this proof of the property for X, but, but if my property is too weak, knowing it's true for X might not be enough to let me prove it for X, for successor of X. And of course, if it's the property is too strong, then sure, I make my recursive call, I get this amazingly powerful statement, but then the thing I'm supposed to prove is amazingly strong and it's, and it's too much. So induction is about finding just this perfect balance of just this right thing that's just strong enough so that you, you know, knowing it's true for X implies it's true for successor of X, but not so strong that I then have this like impossible goal of trying to prove it from of successor of X, or even the base case, like proving it for zero. If my property is too strong, I might just I might be stuck and not be able to prove it, even in the base case, but but definitely in the step case. So, so again, part of why induction is tricky is that it's finding just the right property that's just strong enough but not too strong. So that's a sort of tricky thing um, to think through. The other way you could say why induction is, is not that easy is it's a, it's a point of concept creation. Right? So coming up with new concepts in mathematics is like coming up with new ideas. It's like thinking. <laughs> it's like human thinking. Um, and induction is a place that requires concept creation at exactly this point where you might need to prove something stronger than what you really want because of this thing where you need, you need it to be strong enough from your induction hypothesis for your induction hypothesis to plot, imply the property for the you know, successor of X case. Um, so you're inventing, you're inventing this induction hypothesis. You're coming up with a new concept, a new formula. And concept creation is a, a point of mathematical creativity. I mean, it's like the essential point of mathematical creativity. So um, it's not like the only creativity is the mathematicians ever exercise is in figuring out their induction hypotheses or their proofs. But it's an example of this, I, this thing where you need to come up with a new concept, perhaps, to, to do something. And that's, that's you know, one of the deepest human activities that we have. So, um, it's, so that means it could be really hard. Mercifully, the kind of proofs we'll do will not require <laughs> will not require amazing mathematical ingenuity or depth to figure out a correct induction hypothesis. Um, mostly, we won't we we won't have too much concept creation uh, needs for doing our inductions. Um, so that's that's a good thing. <laughs> um, okay, so I think that's all I really have to share with you right now by way of kind of background and intro to induction, and then we'll turn in our next screencast, which will be the last piece of um, course material for the week of April 6th through 10th. Um, I'll release that screencast pretty soon, and that'll be the, the last piece of that, that puzzle for that week. And that'll be doing screencasts with some basic examples of inductive proofs and seeing how we define the natural numbers and operations on the natural numbers in a functional language. I mean, once you see it, it's, it's no big deal. But we're usually not used to thinking about defining addition and defining multiplication. We just sort of assume they already are there. Um, but we have to define them, and it's easy to do. So, Okay, I hope you are safe and healthy. Let us know if any problems you might be running into or questions. And uh, talk to you another time. Thank you for listening.